This week on the Backtable podcast. When we are considering uh, urology, we have always to consider that is a, is a techno-driven uh, specialty. Uh, we always been in forefront of uh, embracing new technologies. I was saying from laser to uh, robotic surgery to everything, basically. So now AI could potentially be the perfect ally. It can be the perfect way for decreasing our workload, keeping the workflow, leverage everything to the highest performance as possible. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Backtable podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and at backtable.com. This is Aditya Bagra is your host this week, and I'm very excited to introduce our guest today, Gio Kachiamani from USC Keck School of Medicine, where he's an assistant professor and director of the AI program. Gio, thanks so much for coming on. How are you doing today? Thank you, Aditya, for having me here. And I'm so excited of being uh, here today talking about AI. You know, it's pretty cool as a host of this podcast. It's cool to see one of the meteorically rising stars in our field in such a new field such as AI. And um, I'm just thrilled to pick your brain today, Gio. And maybe I'll share a little anecdote before we jump in. There's these things in the course of our lives in recent history, blockchain, machine ledgers, AI have typically kind of been abstract concepts to me. And then one day, a colleague of mine, Tyler Stewart, called me his office and said, hey, man, I want to show you something. And he logged on to chat GPT. It took about seven seconds using his Google email. And he said, hey, I'm planning a dinner party for five of my urology colleagues. Help me put together a five-course meal with drinks. And the output just completely blew my mind. It was prostate punch made of X, Y, and Z and urine luck lamb chops. And we went through five or six of these things. And I just went home to my wife. I was like, Mona, I think the world is going to change like yesterday. So it, it's getting here. It's becoming accessible. And you've really been on the forefront for a while now. And I thought we could just maybe start out with some basic definitions. AI, let's just kick it off with that. That's an excellent point. So, uh, so one of the things that we have to consider first and first is, this, is that AI is not a real new thing. So the story of AI started over 72 years ago when Alan Turing basically uh, wrote uh, one of the first publications on AI. And the title of the manuscript is uh, The Imitation Game. And uh, I'm pretty sure that, you know, a lot of people that are listening to this podcast uh, watched a couple of years ago, The Imitation Game movie. And in uh, that movie, which is a biographical movie, they talk about the story of Alan Turing and how basically he discovered AI. He basically was uh, in the forefront of making basically the second worldwide uh, ending. And he discovered a way for uh, decoding the Enigma machine that was used by the Nazis for, uh, you know, uh, uh, writing the encrypted messages. And he found out a way for decrypting uh, those things. And over the past, the last uh, 72 years, Actually, we have witnessed to the rise of artificial intelligence and the entire technology around uh, computer machine uh, technology. Regarding the definitions, uh, is, uh, you know, definitions are, in my opinion, are too narrow sometimes. And, uh, you know, I find myself teaching to our residents, to our fellow, to try to find out uh, a way for making those definitions more digestible. And I was uh, literally playing uh, with some games with my, one of my nephew. He's uh, five years old young and bright guy. And uh, I was trying to try to figure it out a way for making those definitions more digestible. At the end of the day, we are physicians, we are urologists. And uh, sometimes we are, we lack on uh, how to understand the behind the scene of all these uh, type of definitions. So let me just give uh, a couple of definitions the way that I used to give to my, to my residents. So when we are talking about AI, in general AI, we have to define AI as uh, the theory and the development of a computer system able to perform a task. And normally those tasks are requiring a human intelligence, right? So one of the things that I used to say to my, to my nephew is that I said, let's try to uh, rephrase and try to make more digestible these, uh, uh, these definitions. So what is AI? So imagine like, for example, you have your toy robot, like Optimus Prime and uh, Imagine if uh, your Optimus Prime could think and act like a person. Well, AI is like teaching computers to think and do things that people do. 
like talking, seeing, and making choices. And uh, within this uh, artificial intelligence, which is like an entire world, you can have machine learning, deep learning, and of course, what you were mentioning a few minutes ago about ChatGPT uh, or generative AI. So for machine learning, technically, it's like a subset of AI that allows system to automatically learn and improve from experience. And uh, if we have to do the same thing and trying to teach to our toddlers, to our kids, what is machine learning, we can say that machine learning is like teaching to Optimus Prime new tricks uh, and it's going to learn it by, it by itself. If you show to Optimus Prime, for example, what to do many times, it can figure it out how to do these uh, tricks on its own. Going down and going a little bit deeper, you have deep learning. And uh, technically speaking, deep learning is like a subset of machine learning. Uh, that is uh, employing a neural network for uh, like, you know, with trees and more layers to simulate uh, basically how we think, you know, like uh, the human brain and to learn from a large amount of data. This is the main thing. So machine learning is a way to improve uh, by experience. Deep learning is basically learn from a large amount of data. Going back to, you know, my nephew. So when I say, okay, let's try to figure it out a way for digesting this information. So deep learning is just a special way of teaching to like uh, Optimus Prime, your uh, uh, toy robot. It's like building a robot brain with many layers and in each layers, each level helps uh, the robot to learn things better. And then on top of these, uh, uh, no, on top, inside these uh, uh, deep learning, uh, uh, you have the generative AI, which is actually what you were uh, talking before and uh, which uh, exploded uh, November 6th when uh, OpenAI released uh, uh, out of the blue, uh, the ChatGPT. So generative AI are algorithms, technically are algorithms that use data to create new content, similar to the content that um, you are using for training this data. And again, if you have to think of uh, digesting this information for uh, a kid, you can say that imagine that you have a magical, magical coloring book that could draw pictures by itself. And generative AI is basically like that. It's like that the magic coloring book making new pictures and look like uh, once uh, it's so. I love that. I love that. And so like over the course of our lifetime, we started hearing about machines, Deep Blue beating Ga Gary Kasparov in chess. So I kind of think of that as your maybe early machine learning. You, you plug in all of these possible different openings and closings, and then Deep Blue can sort it out. And then maybe the next iteration is you tell the machine, here's the rules to chess. You figure out all the permutations and then you, you get a superpower. And maybe generative AI would be, can you come up with a game that is as scintillating and timeless as chess that is digestible yet complex enough for humans to enjoy and understand? Is this okay? Well, you know, okay. So uh, if you're asking me if is that okay, I would say, ah, me. Uh, so <laughs> in other words... What we have to consider is that this kind of uh, uh, technology is, uh, you know, extremely satisfying, let's put it this way, for train, but on the other side is extremely and, and also helpful for us as physicians, for example, for understanding how we can make the things better, reducing our workload, keeping the workflow. On the other side, we need to, you know, keep in mind that those machines are not able to think by themselves, even though the chances that we actually can feel that those machines, generative AI, could potentially generate new contents. Actually, they are regenerating contents, which actually is a little bit different. The main concept, the concept of uh, chatbots in general. So the way that ChatGPT is uh, generating the output, you know, with this cursor that is, uh, you know, progressing as somebody's writing, is just to make the human touch, the human feeling. But at the end of the day, I'm not human at all. No, I definitely appreciate that. And um, maybe the other word that, that has come across in, in my preparation for this episode is LLM, large language models. Can you just talk a bit about that, Gio, and how that fits in with what you've just described? Yeah. Large language models, uh, such as, for example, generative pre-training model, that is GPT uh, 3.5 or 4 are a subtype of generative AI that allows you to generate output from uh, different And, uh, you know, if uh, is uh, defined like that, is basically, uh, you know, a, a normal AI. However, the input that you can uh, use for uh, generating a new output can be images, videos, text, and you can generate from those videos, images, or text. That's the main thing about generative AI. Again, when I'm saying that generative AI 
the term generative could potentially be misleading. As humans, actually, we are generating something because we process the world that our, is uh, surrounding us to create a new contents. That is the real human touch. Generative AI right now is able to elaborate the input and then generating something based on the input. So without thinking by itself. When at some point, Generative AI will start making output by itself, we will uh, have another backtable uh, meeting and we will discuss about that a little bit deeper. Yeah, I mean, every conversation I have with people that think about this, it blows my mind over and over again. So before we jump into it, AI and medicine and urology and surgery and so forth, tell us a little bit about how your interest in AI was peaked, how you developed expertise and kind of got where you are today. Well, okay. So first thing first, let me tell you that even though it's uh, appreciable being labeled as an expert, I can tell you that, especially in AI, the field is evolving so fast that nobody is a real, is a real expert. What actually I'm doing, I'm enjoying uh, the journey through expertise, which actually is uh, something that has to be taken into consideration. The field is evolving so fast, is called also exponential medicine, that is basically impossible to uh, define uh, experts in this particular field. You can have basically people that are passionate on that and trying to make their, uh, their contribution in the field, but being an expert is very, very tough. So, you know, my background, I'm a physician, I'm a urologist, and I started basically being uh, interested in AI uh, three or four years ago, when uh, here at the USC, we started a journey for um, implementing the use of artificial intelligence, specifically green learning, to predict the pathology from the radiology. At that point, uh, the pandemic hit the entire world and I have basically to find out a way for uh, using my free time. And, uh, you know, when I figured out that my fellows were uh, extremely, extremely, I would say too busy, I say, okay, let me find out something, uh, something different. And I start studying uh, a little bit about AI. And I come across the book that was, uh, is a bestseller book by Eric Topol, Deep Medicine. And uh, on the cover of the book, you can say, how AI could potentially make medicine human again. And that particular thing actually, you know, blow my mind because we know, I mean, we are living in a world where uh, we are uh, working uh, 12, 15 hours per day. And the majority of the tasks, even as physicians, as surgeons are always the same. And uh, that's basically one of the main reasons of the burnout. You know, one of the very recent survey on uh, burnout showed that in the US, 64% of physicians are in burnout. And 53% of, of the, uh, of the residents are in burnout as well. So you have actually been in burnout even uh, before literally starting being uh, uh, a board certified urologist. And the majority of the times burnout is related to the repetitive task that we find ourselves do every day. AI actually could potentially be the perfect ally. It can decrease the workload, keeping the workload at the perfect on the highest level as possible. And then I started thinking, okay, let's figure it out how we can uh, test from an academic perspective and see if we can then bring uh, from the academic perspective into the clinical practice. And uh, we started this journey. And uh, right now, uh, in 2022, uh, thanks to uh, my chair, Dr. Gil, we established the first uh, artificial intelligence center in urology in the country. And uh, right now we are starting having some fellows that are coming, you know, residents and uh, other faculties that are, you know, join me like Andra Bru, uh, who is an expert in image guided technology and Mitchell Goldenberg, who is uh, a real expert in surgical AI. I love that. So I'll, I'll share another little story at the um, AUA leadership retreat, which was just a week ago. One of the projects that we had proposed were creating templates, say for instance, the microhematuria guidelines mm -hmm. that allow it to be fairly user-friendly for a provider to make sure they've checked all the boxes in terms of number of red cells, smoking history, risk factors, et cetera, put them into buckets and dictate next steps. And we were just kind of discussing this at a table and a colleague there mentioned virtual scribes. These are gonna be coming from the Philippines, India and so forth that could scribe. And then it evolved into what if you could just literally log in your phone set it there. And at the conclusion of your visit, you have a AI virtual scribe that can put together a right note plus the billing. So when you walk out of the patient's room, everything's kind of there. And even better yet, maybe collate all of the preparatory H&P consult notes, labs, imaging, and provide you with the near comprehensive synopsis of all the information that you would need to counsel that patient based on their chief complaint, for instance. 
And it was just such a mind-blowing thing. Like imagine if the time spent could be with the patient and making sure that they understand things. So and what that would do in terms of burnout is tremendous. You know, David Keynes with WellPrepped, I think what he's done in terms of creating content for patients is, is amazing. So I appreciate you sharing that story. And, you know, it is amazing how a little bit of free time and a little bit of direction can um, open up a world of possibilities. So this, this has got to be a little bit of a tough one because it is so all enveloping and encompassing. Maybe just an overview of the use of AI in medicine and neurology. And, if, and I'll just try to keep it somewhat digestible. Pick your top three. These are how the game's going to change in the next years. That's, you know, that's is something that uh, is extremely important uh, because we need to make practical AI for practicing urologists. So we need uh, really to start going from academia to the real practical usage of these uh, artificial intelligence extensions as uh, it should be. So first thing first, we need to figure it that we need to uh, start saying that nobody's going to replace our job for now. AI could potentially be the perfect copilot for uh, improving our experience in medicine. So let me give you a couple of examples. We know that, you know, all of us see in, uh, in clinics uh, patients that are coming with a multiparametric MRI. Best scenario for us, not for the patient, is that the multiparametric MRI is telling you there is a lesion. Because of the lesion, you're going to do a biopsy, a target biopsy, and the target biopsy could come back with a cancer or not. We know that the a way that the MRIs are, you know, read is, uh, is depending on the radiologist experience and also on how and when the radiologist actually read the MRI. There are some papers that are saying that when a radiologist is evaluating the MRI, the day, the birthday, actually the performance is lower. So machine AI could potentially be the perfect copilot for a radiologist, for example, to find in a region of interest automatically. It can spare time in telling you, okay, hey, there is a lesion there and uh, the system could potentially also start uh, making uh, the segmentation of the lesion. And after that, the, uh, the system automatically can give you the prediction of what is the pirates and what could potentially be the pathology. So imagine to export this uh, kind of framework millions of times in uh, our daily practice. And imagine how, many, how much time we could potentially spare in uh, reading MRIs uh, with an higher accuracy. So that is, for example, one of the possible usage of artificial intelligence, uh, so, which is the enhanced uh, imaging uh, vision, which is actually is one of the most attractive fields uh, in the use of AI. Uh, another thing, for example, could be that, you know, you, we have some patients with uh, a bladder cancer, and before the surgery, if they are suitable, we can uh, administer them a new adion chemotherapy. Sometimes, you know, it's very difficult to understand if you have uh, a complete response or uh, a partial response to the chemotherapy. And sometimes you know that after the procedure. Another important point is that sometimes you don't know if you have uh, even a partial response. AI could potentially read through the imaging and tell you if you have a partial response or a complete response to the neoadion chemotherapy. So, this is just uh, some example of enhanced uh, imaging uh, technology. Another field that could potentially benefit for AI, from AI is uh, electronic medical records uh, and uh, clinical history collection. How many patients we see in clinic? Around 30. And uh, usually 15, 20% of them are first uh, patient visit, which means that we need to spend a lot of time talking to them. And uh, imagine you are a patient and you are coming to the hospital and nurses handling you a question. A few seconds later, they are telling you, okay, come over. They are coming to the clinic and uh, they are closing the door. Another nurse is asking you know, the same questions. And after that, the doctor is asking you again the same question. So three times. Second thing that you have to consider is that as physicians, we have always, of course, to read through the patient information, preparing ourselves here in hours in advance. So there is the work outside work that sometimes is not even considered and is not even uh, you know, build. And we are actually spending a lot of time taking out this time from our family or from whatever we want to do. And again, we have some slots in uh, when we are, you know, we uh, visit our patients, which are like between 20 to 25 minutes. And it has been estimated that we spend around 20 minutes just filling shots and then just five minutes talking to our patients. And we know, I mean, you know, all of us uh, as, you know, find ourselves, uh, you know, for personal reason, dealing with doctors. When you are on the other side as a patient, 
you really want these uh, percentages totally inverted. The opposite, you want 20, 20 minutes talking to your doctor and just five minutes him writing patient notes. So imagine in a few years, you have a microphone in your clinic. The microphone is uh, recording like a script, the uh, patient encounter. The AI would be able to identify the voice of the doctor versus the voice of the patient and uh, automatically write the patient note and putting the patient note into context with the labs and with the imaging. This would basically reduce the, basically put light to zero, the work as I work and then making the experience for patient and us for, as a doctor, more enjoyable. At the end of the day, we decided to be doctors, not to fill in charts, but to taking care of our patients. I love that. And I mean, again, kind of some of the themes that I came across when preparing for this were enhanced diagnostics. You mentioned radiology. I think pathology is another one that's quite prime where you've got slides that are not stained. You can extract data from them. You know, the predictive ability to dictate whether or not they're going to respond to new either chemotherapy or ADT or et cetera. That would be something that I think is extremely profound as well. So enhanced diagnostics as a general field provider efficiency, you know, you and I both kind of touched on the ability to collate information that allows the provider to be well-prepared prior to the engagement and then have much of the documentation and, and ostensibly the billing in a very highly accurate way done at the conclusion of the visit. So what about early detection? How are things looking in that? That's something we deal with, right? Kidney stones forming, prostate cancer, microscopic hematuria. Obviously, I'm an oncologist, and this is kind of what I spent some time thinking about. Could you maybe give some examples there? Well, definitely. So early detection is uh, extremely important because that, of course, impact on uh, patient experience and the type of treatment that we use. Let me give you an example. Very, uh, very recently, last week, Lancet published uh, uh, the first randomized trial comparing uh, mammograms that were done for screening in Sweden from four different centers. 80,000 mammograms performed. Randomized trial, 50% uh, underwent just the normal imaging. And uh, the other 50% uh, was a co-piloting imaging or a computer-aided diagnostics where the AI was indicating to the radiologist if and where there were the lesions. So their uh, main findings was that the eye-assisted imaging was performed at the same way as uh, the radiologist, but they were sparing a lot of time. So this is just an example of how AI in screening or early detection could potentially be used. For example, for prostate cancer, it depends uh, on uh, which variables we're going to take into consideration. For example, over the past years, uh, we are dealing with a lot of nomograms. The good thing about nomograms is that they are technically easy to build, but they are biased by the information that you provide at the very beginning. And uh, maybe there are some information that are not, not even recorded right now and because of the quality of the you know, data set that are used. And therefore, we cannot be so accurate in the, the early detection, for example, for prostate cancer. Imagine if we can uh, implement the use of these uh, nomograms that are going to be assisted by the use of AI for detecting the variables and most importantly, to put them into context with the imaging. Right now, we are surrounded by what we call omics. We have radiomics, we have genomics, we have pathomics. All these uh, omics are basically designing the different variables in uh, the different fields that in the majority of the cases can be put into context with uh, the use of uh, artificial intelligence. But so far, radiomics, pathomics, genomics, they have been uh, evaluated separately. If we really want to bring uh, to the next level and creating what we try to call here the prostatomics, bladderomics, renalomics, is where when you are using artificial intelligence to put into context the different omics, radiomics, pathomics, genomics, etc., all into context with the goal of predicting a given outcome. That will make uh, and bring uh, the early detection and uh, the real early screening to the next level. I love that. And, you know, it's getting close. You, you're basically mentioning, you know, next generation personalized medicine. And uh, I was just absolutely amazed at ASCO this year to see a talk given on prostate cancer by some colleagues in radiation oncology where they were able to use, I think it was through Artera, which is a proprietary AI technology looking at the pathology slides and suffice it to say, predict response to androgen deprivation therapy. And if I'm not mistaken, 
these are starting to actually get mentioned and brought up in the in the guidelines we all know, NCCN guidelines. Could you maybe talk just a little bit about that example, Gio? So our field actually is uh, extremely active in AI. Let me give you an example. Over the past few uh, years, when you're looking at the last AUAs meetings in the last 10 years, the number of abstracts talking about or using or testing any kind of AI technology increased from 13 in uh, 2012 to 87 abstracts last year. And this increase over time, I can expect that the numbers will uh, jump to more than 200 this year. This is just for making the point that, you know, as uh, our field has been always in pole position for embracing new technology from robotic system to lasers, NAI is not uh, an exception. One of the things that we have to consider is that uh, we have to be very careful when uh, uh, we are dealing with the companies that are, uh, you know, proposing their own AI systems uh, without uh, a proper patient-physician level evaluation. I mean, one of the things that we have to consider is that, you know, we are uh, extremely techno savvy. We are living in 2023 and there are no more excuses for urologists for not considering AI as part of our daily practice. On the other side, uh, academic centers uh, uh, should start uh, thinking of uh, being part of the discussion when uh, engineers, companies are proposing this kind of technology. And we should be in the forefront and the very beginning of the discussion, not when the product is ready, but in the development of the product. And uh, that's why, in my opinion, before having this kind of technology in the guidelines, we should test it very, very carefully. Yeah, I can appreciate that. And I think as a field, as, as you mentioned, we're quite active and it's remarkable. I'm not a AI expert that keeps up with the literature, but you come across a study where the folks at Mayo are taking EKGs from people's iPhone watches, evaluating tens and hundreds of thousands of them, and they're able to predict who's going to have an MI within the next, you know, six to eight months. So it's, um, it's happening. It's happening fast. So you talked a little bit about enhanced diagnostic, that we can call, call that a field. You talked a little bit about, you could say, physician efficiency. And of course, we're, we're surgeons. And, you know, maybe talk a little bit about this. And I'm sure it gets even more complex. Now you're looking at, you know, holograms and different types of visualization techniques. But are there any things in the, on the surgery side, either in terms of safer or more effective surgery that, you know, seem to be a, a ripe fit for AI? Absolutely. So that is an excellent point. So we are surgeons and therefore let's, uh, you know, add a little bit of wow effect on, uh, you know, this talk about AI. So surgical AI is a real thing. And uh, this is powered by the fact that, again, is still an image copilot technology. We are basically living uh, in the mini, minimal invasive surgery, endoscopic surgery. So which means that the majority of our uh, surgeries are video recorded. And therefore we have a large amount of data to understand basically how we can train machine learning models to, for example, predict some complications or to detect some uh, anatomical variations. So um, here at the USC, we historically, we have a lab on surgical AI, uh, but on top of this, uh, we started a process, a project, the name is ICARUS. ICARUS stands for Intraoperative Complication Assessment that reported with universal standards. And a couple of years ago, we basically figured it out that intraoperative complications are not well reported. And then the main reason why they are not well reported in the literature and, you know, is because uh, we don't have the tools for doing that. And as surgeons, we always think that we are basically like Avengers. We don't have any intraoperative adverse events. While my past chairman, when I was uh, in residence, residency, he was uh, Professor Artibani, who is uh, one of the legends in uh, robotic surgery uh, in Europe. He was used to say that when a surgeon is telling you that he or she has not any intraoperative complication, there are only two reasons, or because he's a liar or because he's actually not doing any surgery. Intraoperative adverse events, intraoperative complication, near missed event always happen. The way that you're collecting them is the key. And as surgeons, sometimes we find out ourselves through not knowing or not how to collect them. And on the other side, we don't have the proper tools for doing that. On top of that, it has been reported that it's very dramatic and tough for a surgeon to admit that an intraoperative adverse event happened. So AI actually could potentially detect the intraoperative adverse events and put them into contest with the anatomy of the patient, with the, the disease characteristics, and uh, with all these things together actually could potentially, I'm not saying justify, but at least put into contest what happened. 
AI could potentially be used for this. It could potentially be used for uh, detecting anatomical variation, alarming the physician when uh, you are doing something that, something that could potentially lead you to have an intraoperative adverse events. Very recently, our team has just put together a meta-analysis looking at all the studies that were looking at the uh, use of artificial intelligence for uh, detecting intraoperative adverse events. And the meta-analysis of those studies show that artificial intelligence is able to predict an intraoperative adverse event with a 92% of accuracy, which I think is pretty cool. That's fascinating. And, you know, one of the cool things about being affiliated with the podcast is you meet thought leaders in various fields. And I think it's just going to continue to explode. You're taking all the preoperative variables, you're taking the imaging, you create some next generation 3D ability to visualize what you're getting into. And now you can really accurately predict, not some CMS coding nonsense that looks at a comorbidity, what the likelihood is of of this person running into a complication. So you can count to the patients, you can prepare for that. And then intraoperatively, if there's bowel, if there's a blood vessel, if there's a critical piece of viscera, receive an alert, it's quite powerful. So everything that you're describing to me is contingent or sounds to be contingent in some form or fashion on having lots of data, lots of videos, lots of robotic videos, lots of systems, lots of normal mammograms, you kind of name it, right? And maybe I'll ask for like a week, we can run through an example here and I'll tell you a rudimentary project that we worked on and, and you could maybe describe a ideal scenario in your mind. So one of my areas of interest is testicular cancer, germ cell tumors. I do a lot of post-chemo RPL in these and just like everybody else in the world, you know, 40 to 50% of them are fibrosis and necrosis. We've taken sets of patients, 20 with fibrosis and necrosis, the other 20 with teratoma or, or a small proportion of viable germ cell tumor tried to do semi-qualitative, you know, are the borders irregular, are the vessels raised, plus texture analysis. And suffice it to say, it's not been that fruitful. Now, I imagine if I had 10,000 negative RPLNDs and 10,000 teratoma, the ability to impute that would be a bit more usable. So maybe walk me through your ideal creation of a study and how AI is involved to predict pathology on post-chemo RPLND. That's first and first, that is, uh, is extremely interesting what you just said, because very recently uh, we have a meeting here at the USC talking about the importance of big data sets, especially for AI. So before I was mentioning that AI is not a new thing, it started like 72 years ago with Alan Turing and the concept and the technology, of course, changed, but the main AI infrastructure didn't change that much. What is changing right now is the quality and how big are those data sets. Quality of the data set and how big is the data set are extremely important for making a machine learning working. And not only for the training, but also for the validation. Let me give you a few examples. Over the past uh, few years, uh, almost 80 publications have been published testing, uh, using, training, the use of artificial intelligence for predict the pathology from uh, the MRI in patients with suspicious prostate cancer. The variability on how those uh, uh, machine learning technology were trained or tested is extremely huge. If I'm training a machine learning methodology on my data and you're training your methodology, your machine learning methodology on your data, my data and your data will never be incomparable because we're not using the same uh, population for testing the performance of those technologies. That's why we really need uh, joining the forces as uh, the field and trying to put together big data sets where uh, everybody that has, you know, a machine learning technology could potentially test the performance of the technology in the same population. That is the key. Um, you know, just for this, uh, uh, very recently has been released the PKI Challenge. PKI Challenge is uh, a prostate cancer challenge. Uh, is a huge data set with uh, more than uh, 10 different centers from Europe. They joined the forces and put together 10,000 annotated MRIs with uh, um, a region of interest or a suspicious lesion. And uh, almost 100 uh, groups from all over the world tested their own machine learning methodology for uh, evaluating the performance of their machine learning methodology into the same data. So that is the key. But if uh, I may say data alone uh, are not sufficient for uh, making uh, an AI framework that could potentially be useful, useful uh, in our daily practice. What is needed, and I learned this on my skin over the last three years, is uh, the collaboration between uh, physicians and engineers. 
and to try to find out the common ground between uh, the two specialties and try to start talking the same language. At the very beginning, it's basically impossible. But at the very end, you're going to start enjoying the journey. And uh, when you see your engineers with a face that seems to be a little bit proud because they, you can understand 1% of what they say, they are more than it. Yeah, I love that. And I mean, there's so many analogies. You know, I have a lab that focuses on testicular cancer and interface with a computational biologist. They're speaking one language, you're speaking one language, or you're trying to develop or identify new microRNAs to predict teratomas, for instance. And sometimes it is just, it takes a while to get there to the common ground and not to sound cheeky, but you know, the common ground is a better patient experience. No question about it. But when, when you start seeing the fruits of your labor, that this is actually moving the needle forward, I think it can be intensely powerful. And I think your idea, your collaborative spirit is spot on. I mean, it's challenging enough to be a physician or a surgeon, much less a surgeon scientist. Now, to become an expert in all of these domains, which are so super complicated and people spend years educating themselves on, it's maybe digestible right now, but clearly in five to seven years, it's going to be incomprehensible for us to work in, in isolation. You know, we've, we've kind of talked about the, the promise of AI and how it's just around the corner and there are some maybe things that are a little bit closer than, than other. So as these come out, I think you've really been quite ahead of the game thinking about the responsible implementation because any of us can kind of think about a, some crazy scenarios where big data, again, predicting personality disorders or predicting, you know, a predilection for Parkinson's. And, you know, we don't want to go back to like a eugenics type state of a hundred years ago. And now it gets even more complicated, right? Large data sets being electronically transferred ethical considerations, data privacy. How does this all work, Gio? Well, that is an excellent point. Ethical considerations are uh, extremely important and they represent the very first step of the different layers that we have to consider when uh, we are uh, using or considering AI as a part of the game. Very recently, uh, one um, scientist who is actually also an engineer and a priest in Italy, Paolo Benanti, who is a real authority on uh, ethical uh, consideration new technology. He coined the term algorithmics. Algorithmics is a mix between algorithms and ethics. And uh, very recently I gave a lecture and for the very first time I found myself putting uh, those two terms together in the same uh, presentation. Algorithm and ethics that, you know, a few years ago was not even a thing. And uh, just for uh, making the point on how important it is, in 2020, the WHO, the World Healthcare Organization, put together a formal document statement that took six months of being produced on ethical consideration on AI. And uh, there are six ethical considerations that has to be taken into consideration every time we are having, as I was saying, AI as part of the game in any healthcare activity. And uh, one of the things that we have to consider is uh, who or what is going to be accountable for the decision-making. As doctors, every time we see a patient, we make one of our decisions based on the patient history, on the present history, presentness, or whatever. Everything is based on our knowledge. AI could potentially do the same with the same accuracy, but this type of technology is not accountable because it is just a machine. And therefore, uh, here is the main problem that this kind of technology could be, should be always a part of the game, but only as an ally, as a copilot, not as a pilot. The real decision should be made by us as physicians. At the end of the day, one of the main critiques, you know, that you can see, you know, is like, uh, they always question, oh, AI will replace physicians or AI will replace urologists. No, AI will never replace urologists. For sure, urologists who knows and start using or considering AI as part of the game will replace those who are not using or considering it. That is a different thing. And the second point, together with uh, the accountability, is the explainability of those systems. Explainability is, uh, you know, a kind of weird uh, word for uh, basically saying how much a machine learning technology is explainable, how much this system is uh, open, is not a black box. If I know that a system can go from A to B, but I can know in advance each one of the steps that are bringing the system to go from A to B, it will make me as a physician more comfortable to understand how the decision was made. 
the majority of the machine learning right now, machine learning technologies are totally black box. So we know the input, we know the output, but it's basically impossible to understand how these outputs were generated. There is the, a new type of technology that we developed here at the USC together with the Viterbi Institute. The name is green learning. And uh, green learning is because uh, first, we need uh, less uh, energy for uh, having the same performance. That's why we call it green learning. Something that we need to consider also a carbon footprint uh, of AI into our world. But most importantly, green learning is able to be an open uh, system that allows to uh, engineers, to doctors in, uh, in our case, to go back and to understand how the system was able to go from A to B, how to generate uh, the decision-making that the machine uh, had done. Yeah, a couple, couple of comments. So one, it sounds like you better join them or, or get left behind robotic surgery. Perfect example. I don't think any, everybody had to be an early adopter, but if you weren't going to be an adopter, then goodbye prostatectomies, partial nephrectomies. And I, I definitely appreciate that. And one other thing that kind of comes up in terms of ethical considerations, which is not exactly what we're talking about, are incorporating AI into academic output. Now, that's a small sliver of urologists and practitioners, et cetera. But I mean, the same time that I sat down for the first time with my colleague and he showed me ChatBT, we also just to kind of mess around said, hey, can you please write uh, a one page grant with specific aims on a project regarding mineral residual disease detection and bladder cancer? And okay, it was somewhat generic, but it was also pretty darn good. How does this whole kind of aspect of the evolution of academic medicine get impacted by AI? This is a, a, a very important point. As I was saying before, uh, generative AI, even though it's generating something, is not generating something out of the blue. It's generating something because uh, that system is exposed to a lot of information and then rewarding those information could potentially generate something. I remember that, you know, uh, when um, ChatGPT, you know, was released, it was November 2023. And uh, one of my fellow that came to the office, uh, he's a, a foreign fellow, and he showed me the capability of those technology. And I start thinking, okay, we need to do something because here the risk is that if this technology is going to be used by, you know, you can use this technology in a good way for decreasing your workload. But on the other side, there is always the chance that people are going to start using it for, as you were mentioning, writing out of the blue uh, papers or publications. And it's not only the writing of the manuscript is also the use of this technology, for example, uh, on in academia in general, in research uh, on, uh, for example, there are some papers that mention that ChatGPT generative AI could potentially be used to find the gaps in the literature or ChatGPT can be used for generating hypotheses. ChatGPT can be used, for example, for uh, an, do the analysis. Well, even though I'm extremely, uh, you know, supporting on new technology, we need to consider that this technology has to be supervised. And uh, for this reason, in March, we started a global cross-specialty initiative. The name is Kangaroo. Kangaroo stands for uh, uh, ChatGPT, uh, Generative AI, and uh, Large Language Models for uh, Accountable User Reporting. And uh, we have created uh, a real group of Avengers. Uh, we put together AI guidelines developers together the Wicotor Network representatives, the COPE uh, representatives, and uh, the editors, uh, section editors, editors-in-chief of the most important journals from Nature to eLife to Lancet uh, to Nature Machine Intelligence, uh, Cell, and some other regulatory systems and agency for uh, putting together the uh, first uh, guidelines for the ethical use of generative AI in academia. One of the things that we are doing is to create in these three lists. The first is the don'ts list. So anything that you, you should avoid, for example, listing ChatGPT is one of the author or uh, using ChatGPT to find in the gaps in the literature, or using ChatGPT for making a review of a paper. I can tell you that I hear the weirdest story about that. The second thing is that as long as you're following those don'ts criteria, so you're avoiding anything that is in the don'ts uh, list, it means that you could potentially use it and therefore you have to disclose it. As long as you're disclosing it and you are, dis you are taking full uh, responsibility of where and what you have used this technology, you're fine. And then the third list is uh, how to report this technology. We need to, as I was mentioning before, talking about experts in generative AI is uh, very reductive because it's basically impossible to keep up with this technology and become an expert. And uh, on top of this, uh, we know how academia works. 
uh, a paper is submitted, a paper is reviewed by your peers, and then it's going to be eventually accepted by the editors. The risk is that we don't have expert reviewers or uh, editors that are expert enough to understand if the paper is good enough for being published. So therefore, what we are putting together is a framework that can assist authors, reviewers, publishers, and of course, readers and stakeholders to understand if all the important information are report. Okay. So uh, I think that it kind of sounds like the intermediate category. It's like, it's not high risk, it's not low risk. So it's got to be, those are your don'ts and that's intermediate risk. And um, I, I mean, hats off to you because it's a, it's a scoping project to try to capture all the considerations. And I've had a chance to read your review article and, it, and it's quite enlightening, no question about it. So we've talked a little bit about things from the physician side. What is the responsibility and acceptance, in your opinion, from the patient side? Oh, that's an excellent point. Uh, so in the majority of the cases, unfortunately, patients accept passively this kind of technology because they sometimes they cannot understand the behind the scene. And uh, therefore they say, okay, if my doctor is saying that it's good for me, I'm going to do that. And this is basically something that we have to consider also on the light of, you know, the recent development for telemedicine. Before the pandemic, if you were asking to an average urological patient, like uh, 65, 70, oh, we're going to do, we're going to have a, a consultation by phone or by computer. Nobody will say, oh, I'm going to accept it right away. One of the only forces, maybe the only gift of pandemic is the digitalization of the population, especially the elder population. And therefore, because of this uh, boost in digitalization, now the patients are accepting a little bit more and they are more interested in what those technologies are. Again, we need to make sure that our patients are understanding that it's not going to be the AI that is going to take care of them. It's the AI that is cooperating us for taking care better for their interest. It's like uh, at the very beginning of robotics. Uh, a lot of patients were coming and say, hey, I want the robot to operate me. No, he's not going to be the robot. It's going to always me, but operating through the robot and, uh, you know, enhancing my uh, surgical expertise. Again, I really believe that patients right now are more informed. They have um, more interest in understanding a little bit the behind the scene. But it's our duty as physicians to make sure that everything regarding AI is going to be used ethically, accountably, and most important, in a way that's going to be explainable to our patient. Yeah, I appreciate that. And, um, you know, one of my least favorite activities is at the end of a busy day to sit down and respond to 30 patient messages and queries. And boy, how delicious does it sound that you have a AI technology that can take all the patient messages that have ever been uploaded in Epic, team up with a automatic patient query responder and Hey, you know, it's three days after my prostate, I've got a little blood in the urine. What do you think? Some poor resident in the middle of the night doesn't have to call them and say, stay hydrated as long as there's no clots and continues to look Kool-Aid color, you're okay. But a Autobot responds to the patient, you know, is that good? Is that bad? I believe these are actually being piloted. What are your thoughts on that, Gio? Well, that's an, is an excellent, uh, a- excellent question. And uh, this is something that we are trying to develop here. So... One of the things about the chatbots, again, is uh, the fact that the way that they reply, they are very human-like. And therefore, a patient could potentially ask questions and having some replies that sounds like a doctor on the behind the scene. I really believe that this kind of technology could be potentially be very useful for uh, a pre-triage. Imagine to have a patient, this patient underwent a QRBT. And uh, the first question is that when they're going, uh, uh, you know, uh, to the bathroom and, you know, they're going to see some blood in the urine. They're going to see some clots in the urine, very small, and they're going to panic. I mean, uh, uh, I could imagine myself in the same situation. So the first thing is that calling the doctor, sending emails, sending messages, or sometimes go directly to the emergency department. And then, of course, it's going to be a cost for the society, but not only that, it's a human cost, because sometimes it's just, you know, a matter of call and understanding that kind of stuff could potentially happen. So there are two things that we can use for uh, and can be used those large language models. So from one side, as you were mentioning, creating these chatbots that could potentially go through the patient history, that particular patient history, and with proper training, understanding if uh, that is a serious situation that requires an emergency department admission or something that could potentially be managed or is a normal healing process. On the other side, this uh, kind of technology could potentially be used to bridge the gap between uh, our technical uh, language to what a patient could understand. 
here at the UC, we started the process uh, and it will be very soon a randomized trial where uh, we are uh, going to have a GPT-4 creating lay person summaries of uh, the discharge dispositions and discharge letters of patient underwent from TRBT to a radical cystectomy. And what we are trying to do is to make everything more uh, understandable for patients. In a way, the first patient are not going directly on Google to get information because we know Dr. Google is always around the corner. And sometimes we are just the second opinion and not even the first one. And on the other thing that we have to consider is that the more the patient are informed and the more they understand, the less actually could potentially be scared about the disease. I mean, I put myself in that particular thing. A couple of years ago, my girlfriend has leukemia and I have to deal with, uh, even though I'm a doctor, being on the other side and being a caregiver and trying to understand what an hematologist was trying to say to my girlfriend. And uh, when you are on the other side, uh, you are basically dealing with uh, the personal impact that particular disease is having on uh, your you know, beloved one. And on the other side, the fact that even though you're a doctor, you don't understand everything. I mean, we are very specialized. And uh, when, uh, you know, an hematologist is talking to you about survival, about these things, about what could potentially happen, then the things are becoming totally different, totally difficult to understand. That's why I start thinking, okay, we need to deal with this in a way that somebody is not technically prepared for understanding that particular field. This technology could potentially help us, help him. And uh, that's why we started this journey. Well, thanks for sharing that uh, personal story, Gio. And uh, of course, we hope and pray that she's doing just perfectly fine. She's doing good. Yeah, I um, I took it upon myself, at least for one of the more common diagnoses that I see, prostate cancer, to put together a video that's 30 minutes on newly diagnosed prostate cancer. And, you know, we talk about Gleason scoring and PSAs and when imaging is required and surveillance, focal therapy, prostatectomy, radiation, et cetera. And when I diagnose with somebody, the pathology comes back, I call them, I say, hey, Mr. So-and-so, we did find prostate cancer biopsy. You're going to be fine. I want you to review these resources. This is your homework in the week before you come to see me. And then I find that our conversation is much more fruitful, much more practical instead of they heard the word cancer and nothing else is kind of registering. And then for prostatectomy, I put together a video that I shared through WellPrepped. It's on what to expect after prostatectomy. We talk about alternating Tylenol and ibuprofen and with your catheter care and scrotal swelling incisions, bruising, blah, blah, blah. And that's dramatically reduced the um, the impact. And I did have a patient view it before I published it to say, is this actually useful to you, interpretable to you? But I, but I think you're absolutely right. There could be such a disconnect. If you started talking to me and said, hey, you know, if it's generative AI, we're, we're going to go this route. But if it's machine learning, we're going this route. If it's LLM and just the acronyms, the verbiage, the the lexicon can be quite overwhelming. So I think that's wonderful. And, you know, again, making the patient experience as they're going through something requiring medical care better is again, a main, main goal here. So I, I really appreciate you kind of walking through some practical examples, some of the ethical considerations, responsible utilization of this. Maybe we could talk a little bit about practical tips for exploring AI for a novice. You know, say I'm a Actually, this happens to me where people say, hey, I'm interested in AI research. And I say, okay, I've got some ideas. And, and honestly, one time I told them there was a student from another institution. I said, you should try to connect with the folks at USC. I think they're kind of the leaders currently. But practical tips for exploring AI for novice. How would you get started? Okay, so there are several things that we have to consider. First thing first, that we you know our uh, education is uh, in the majority of cases like because we are physicians and it's med school. And all this technicality could potentially not be helpful for understanding the real behind the scene of this uh, kind of technology. So the first thing that, you know, uh, we try of putting together, we establish this uh, uh, team of uh, young uh, passionates of uh, new technologies and AI uh, that is powered by the Young Academic Urologist Working Group of the European Association of Urology. And uh, one of the things that we are trying to do right now is uh, of putting together a free course where uh, we are uh, explaining uh, in a digested, uh, already digested way, all uh, the behind the scene on what is AI. That is the first step. So the understanding of the uh, terminology and the possible application. The second thing that, in my opinion, people should start thinking is exploring. I mean, there are right now a lot of uh, uh, new publications. And uh, the way that, at least when I'm reviewing one of the publications, is always asking to the authors, 
of rewarding the methodology in a way could potentially be explainable and eventually allowing reproducibility of their findings in a way that everybody could potentially understand. And the third thing is that our doors are always open. And uh, if somebody wants to join the team and want to come here for doing a, a fellowship or research fellowship on artificial intelligence, we are more than happy to provide all the information and uh, all the training that is needed for understanding uh, what is needed at the very beginning to start your journey on uh, AI in healthcare. Yeah, I might have to apply if you're taking seasoned vets at this point. Uh, Geo sounds pretty awesome. I might appreciate that. And, you know, for me, like I mentioned, as we kicked off, it was all fairly foreign. It seemed kind of abstract. And uh, I actually just found kind of fooling around with chat GPT to be pretty eye-opening and informative. And I think that could, you know, maybe help. And I'm sure if you chipped into chat BT, how would you advise a urology novice to get involved in AI research? It'd probably have some reasonable suggestions there. But I appreciate that. I mean, it's just like anything, right? Sometimes you got to jump in and kind of explore for a little bit, learn about the methodology. It's like taking a course, right? On, on using a, a high capacity camera. You can read a textbook, but when you put the camera in your hands, you got to actually start taking some pictures and messing with the aperture and the zoom and the focus and see how it goes in your hand. I like that. And do you think that, um, you know, are there actual instances today that are ready for prime time? I mean, is there like, an example of something where I could start using this in my clinical practice tomorrow? Uh, so that's something that we have to consider. Right now, the FDA has just approved, uh, not for clinical, uh, uh, at least for clinical purposes, uh, the use of AI-guided imaging technology, such as new software that could potentially be coupled with uh, the you know, uh, Philips uh, MRIs uh, to automatically detect uh, region of interest. And very soon they will come on the market that will become part of our daily practice. And I'm pretty sure that you hear about the fact that some of the uh, EMR, EHR softwares are going to uh, partnering with Microsoft to uh, basically start the journey of implementing larger language models into uh, the EMR. Right now, I would say that we are very close to having something that is going to help us in our daily practice. So I would say uh, we are just begun. So back off to F1. Yeah, I sometimes kind of wonder if it's not going to take some pandemic-esque event for things to go to prime time, whether it's an explosion of the global population with a physician shortage just got decimated. And now it's like time to kick this into gear and some things are going to slip through the cracks. You know, maybe an elderly person has a hard time or you can't get the images reviewed or you rely on a report, but uh, hopefully not. Hopefully that whole experience has, as you mentioned, empowered us that, you know, when push comes to shove, let's get that, that technology in there responsibly. Well, I, I love this. And I mean, it's, it's amazing. And it's something that I think we're all proud of as a community to see urology on the forefront, like we have been for so many technologies. Well, maybe as we come across an hour here, Gio, and I think I could pick your brain for another few, what are some kind of parting thoughts for the listenership on AI in medicine, AI in urology? So I really believe that in general, when we are considering uh, urology, we have always to consider that is a, is a techno-driven uh, specialty. Uh, we always been in forefront of uh, embracing new technologies. I was saying from laser to uh, robotic surgery to everything basically. So now AI could potentially be the perfect alley. It can be the perfect way for decreasing our workload, keeping the workflow, leverage everything to the highest performance as possible. And uh, one of the things that we really want to, and I just want to stress it, is that we don't want to create any disparity, especially for patients. AI should be something that could ensure the inclusiveness in, uh, in terms of how our patient could potentially get advantage of this technology. And as physicians, we have to be at the forefront for uh, ensuring that. And uh, in my opinion, be part of the discussion together with the engineers, uh, together with the uh, coders and computer developers and companies. And again, not be included uh, in the discussion at the very end as users, but at the very beginning as developers. I like that. That resonates. It's, it's kind of like translational oncology. You can't just be the companies telling you what you need. We have to be involved in the part of the conversation. Well, Gio, it's been an absolute pleasure. Keep on pushing the field and um, enrolling this, this amazing new, I think, disruptive technology well, new slash not new disruptive technology out in a responsible way. Thanks again. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. 
Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at underscore Backtable on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable is hosted by Aditya Bagrodia and Jose Silva. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Devante Delbrun. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Administrative support provided by Jimmy Lee Thanks again for listening and see you next week.